6.45, we want to get started and want to greet you in the name of the Lord. It just some, some mornings feel a little more early than other mornings. This morning feels really early for some reason. I've been up a while, but um, it's probably because it is, it is early. So, I don't know, Kathy said she was up at 3.15. Anybody, anybody beat that? So, yeah, that oh. oh, you weren't up studying systematic theology? Okay. 3.15. Oh, that's, that's early. All right, so this is week 19. I was counting them up. And we're supposed to be finished uh, next um, Thursday. How many think we're going to make it? <laughs> I don't think we're going to. I don't think we're going to make it. Sixteen. Uh, let's say we're on fifteen, and we'll get to sixteen this uh, morning on the the subject of death, and then we all have seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, and then twenty. And um, I am on twenty, so I've, I'm almost finished. I am. Um, I didn't bring it with me this morning, my friend. It's back in the office, but man, that thing is, is heavy. All right, so I want to get started with a word of prayer. I want to thank you for being here. Thank you guys for watching online. I know many of you who used to be in here tell me now that you're out there, but how do I really know that? How do I know that you are awake and, and watching us if you're not here? But I trust you. I, I believe you. In your pajamas, drinking your coffee, and so that's great. And we're glad that you guys are here. So let me pray for you. And then we'll finish up this lesson on perseverance. Father, we love you so much, and we are just reminded that great is your faithfulness. Uh, Lord, your mercies are new every morning, and that we are so blessed, God, to be able to know you, to have fellowship with you, to worship you with our minds this morning. We do ask you, Holy Spirit, to be our teacher, uh, to be our guide as you walk us through the book that you wrote, the Holy, the Holy Spirit, as you've inspired Scripture we ask that you would in, illuminate us so that we can understand clearly. Yes, Lord, even some of these difficult uh, texts, or especially some of these difficult texts that we'll look at this morning, we pray that you would teach us so that, Lord, we would grow closer to you and that we would be able to equip others and, and even more equip, God, to share our faith with others. So thank you for our folks here this morning at Great Hills. Pray blessings on them. Pray blessings on those who are watching us uh, online, and for those who will uh, watch these in the future, we pray that, uh, God, you would encourage them, and you would disciple them, and deepen them, and this is our prayer now in Jesus' name, amen. I was reminded of our church this, this week, and just the importance of, uh, of our Radiant Church uh, statement, that we want to worship God with passion, we want to uh, teach His Word, and be grounded in the Scriptures, which is, of course, a, a discipleship. Up, uh, upward in worship, inward in discipleship, and then outward uh, in evangelism and missions. You know, I find myself praying that prayer for, uh, for you. I pray for you every morning, yea, even this early morning in my quiet time. I have a section there, and I just pray for uh, the people at Great Hills that God would bless you in, in every dimension. So this morning we're going to look at the um, conclusion of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Last time we looked at the doctrine of uh, sanctification. Some people call it uh, perfectionism or entire sanctification, which we uh, concluded that that's really not what Scripture teaches. It does teach us the importance of sanctification, but we don't believe that on this side of the earth we could be absolutely perfect or absolutely, completely uh, sanctified. But we are saved in a moment, at least I was, and I'm sanctified for a lifetime, that he's still working on me to make me what, he, uh, will make me what I ought to be. All right, so let's look at perseverance of the saints. We're, we stopped at C, which says those who fall away from Christ can give many external signs of conversion. Now, when I say those who fall away from Christ, we concluded, or at least in my heart and mind, I've concluded that those who are truly born again cannot fall away and apostatize and lose their salvation. So who can fall away? Who can fall under the rubric of apostasy? And it would be people like Judas, for example. Judas is a very fine example of someone who gave many external signs of salvation, but in the end, he demonstrated by his fruit, uh, by the result and the, the end pattern of his life, that even though he was very close to Christ, he really, really never committed. You know, the, the movie The Son of God brought that out, and I thought it was really interesting. They, they would put scenes on Judas, and you would see him throughout the, uh, throughout the movie he appeared to be one way with Jesus, but he really was a different way with the other disciples, and ultimately, as you know, as he betrayed him to Caiaphas. 
1 John 2, 19 is a great verse that talks about those who were with us, but really they weren't with us because they didn't stay with us. They went out from us, but they were not of us, John says. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that they might, that that, they might be made manifest that none of them were of us, says John. And by the way, John, he gives some amazing teaching on... Um, you know, on perseverance and on really those who are truly uh, the Lord's. Later on, I'm going to share with you a threefold test to determine whether we're in the faith and we can help see if others are in the faith by this threefold test that John himself gives. How about this text? Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Is there a more difficult text in the Bible than that? Oh, but Lord, I, I cast out demons in your name. Oh, Lord, I prophesied in your name. Oh, Lord, I did all these things for you. And Jesus looks at them and says, depart from me for what? Now, notice he didn't say, I knew you at one time, but now I never know you. He didn't say that. He said, no, I've I've never known. You've never really been a a part of me and a part of my people. So, man, that's, that's a tough passage of Scripture because those people, uh, on, on on the surface, initially it looks like, that they were genuine. How about Mark chapter 4? You, you know, Jesus said, if you don't understand this parable, you're not going to understand anything I'm saying. <laughs> you're not going to understand any of the parables I'm teaching unless you understand the parable of the, you might remember? The sower and the seed. And the seed is the good gospel of Jesus Christ, and the soil is the recipients, how we receive that good gospel seed. And there are four categories, and all the first three just don't make it. The first three are not born again, but the last one, the one that lasts and produces fruit, that's the, that's the representative of the person who's genuinely converted. But those on the third, I, I was thinking about that this week, those who, um, it says they received the, the Word of God with joy, and uh, maybe sometimes they sprout up for just a little bit, but the Bible also says in verse 17 that they endure for a, a time. They endure for a time. And so, really, one of the defining traits of a truly born-again person is the Spirit of God lives in them, and not that they're perfect, not that they don't deviate a little bit, and not that they don't fall into sin, and God rebukes them and chastises them. It's not that at all. It's that there is a, there is a steady... Y'all watch me right quick. It's, it's kind of like they're doing this. You see what I'm saying? They maybe take some detours, but they're, they're on that upward way, and, um, and that's manifest in the fourth type of soil there in Mark uh, chapter 4. So if it helps you any, when you're reading that... Remember that the first three, at least in my mind and heart, the first three are never genuinely uh, converted or saved. It's only that fourth one, and that's the one that stays and produces uh, fruit. How about this next text? Boy, this is a good one. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, and also Hebrews chapter 10. I don't have time to look in depth at chapter 10, but I do have time this morning. I want to look at Hebrews chapter 6 because oftentimes people who believe in apostasy, they will say, well, what about Hebrews? What about Hebrews 6? For it surely seems to me that that person is born again and they fall away and they will never be able to be restored back to repentance. Uh, So let's read it. It says, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, they have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. If they fall away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. That to me is one of the most intriguing, fascinating passages in in, in all the Bible. Because here it is, if you believe it's a Christian who falls away and they can never be restored back to God in repentance and they lose their salvation. By the way, many people believe that. Did you know that? Many, really, people that love the Lord just like you love the Lord, they strongly believe that that Bible verse teaches that you can fall away and never be restored. But if it doesn't mean that, then what does it mean? If it doesn't mean that, then it means a person who can come so very close. And that's what John Calvin said. He said, here's a picture of a person who is as close as anybody has ever come to the kingdom, and yet they're not genuinely born again. And when they reach that point and they reject it, then it's impossible for them to come back around and be saved. Those really are the only two 
interpretations. You have, to, you have to pick one or two, and both of them are hard, are they not? Because I would always like to believe nobody's beyond God's reach. Nobody, I mean, God can save anybody. Yes, he can, but he can't. he's not going to save this person because they cross that threshold. The scripture says it is impossible. And by the way, I know people like this. And it's very strange for me to try to pray for people like this. Because what do you pray? I pray, well, well, Lord, and this is what I pray. Lord, you know. You know if they've crossed that line or not. I don't know, so I'm just going to keep praying. I'm going to keep praying for them, and God, your, your will be done. So let's walk through these uh, verses and, and, and make some comments on them. First of all, they who have once been enlightened, they've understood the gospel, right? It does not say they've embraced it, but they have been enlightened. They have probably heard many a sermon, if you will. They've tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. Tasted is not the same thing as swallowing, right? Tasting is different than ingesting and digesting, okay? They've tasted the power of the Word of God. They've, they've experienced and saw the powerful workings of the Holy Spirit. The next phrase says, these people who have fallen away have become partakers uh, of the Holy Spirit. They have, they have associated with, they have seen the, the power of the Spirit of God, at least evident in other people's uh, lives. The Holy Spirit has influenced them, but it never says where he has redeemed or regenerated them. Is it an answer? All this phraseology, it never says the things that we would expect of a person who's been truly born again. It does not say this person has been regenerated. This person has been justified by faith through Christ alone. This person is born again. This person is saved. It never says that. It, it just kind of dances around it for a reason. When it uses words like, they've been enlightened, you know, they've tasted, they've become partakers. And then the text says it is impossible, metanoia, it is impossible to restore these people to a point of repentance, which I believe is a place of repentance uh, unto faith. Um, Wayne Grudem, if you're, if you're interested, he has a really good section on this. And he, he is very strong on, uh, on the perseverance of the saints, and as most people in Reformed tradition are. Let me turn this off. I love this brother, but I'm not going to... I'm not going to read his text right now. I might get distracted. So, um, was it, Who was it that did that? It was Kenneth Starr. It's Kenneth Starr. Y'all know who Kenneth Starr is? He's the president of, of Baylor. He used to be the prosecuting attorney or a judge. I want to say it was Kenneth Starr. I was in a, in a meeting in um, Virginia, and he was speaking. And um, this has been many years ago. And um, wasn't he the... Attorney in the Monica Lewinsky case and all that, okay. So he gets a phone call right in the middle of his lecture, right in the middle of his speech, and he takes it. And I was like, that's odd, you know, because we're sitting out there. There's a bunch of people out there. He goes, hold on just a second. He said, hey, honey, how are you doing? And he has this conversation with his daughter. I thought that was pretty, pretty interesting. And he hangs it up and comes back, comes back to us. That was free. I just thought I'd share that with you all this morning. Okay, let me get back here. Um, all right, how do we know people like this are not genuinely uh, born again? So we know because uh, they, do, they don't continue with Christ. Uh, and Revelation talks about this, those who finish, those who continue on uh, with the Lord. In 1 John 5, 16 and 17, John tells us about those who have sinning a sin unto death. He says, don't pray for them. We read about the unpardonable sin, which is at that point that we've rejected the Holy Spirit's revelation of, of Christ and attributed it to, to the enemy. All right, their minds are made up, their hearts are hardened, their consciences, consciences are calloused, and uh, that is a bad place to be. And uh, we, we certainly never want to reach uh, that point, and, and if you're really born again, you, you will not reach that point. Now, let's watch this. This, this to me, helped me more than anything in understanding that difficult text. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, but now look at Hebrews 6, 4 through, I mean, 7 through 8. I don't have it on the screen, but, but if you don't have your Bibles with you, then just hear me carefully. In 6, 7, and 8, he compares these people um, to those who are thorns and, and thistles who do not bear fruit. Now, by the way, the, the Bible's never going to refer to a genuine Christian as a thorn or a thistle or a goat, okay? Uh, there's just some phraseology. It's not going to be applied to Christians. But he compares them to thorns and thistles, and then he mentions these people that... Um, Hebrews 6, 9, he talks about the church. He said, but we expect better things, more sure things that belong to salvation. Okay? 
Now read that within its context. He's describing verses 4 through 6, 7, and 8. Those who do not uh, stay with the Lord, they turn away. They never were of the Lord, and you can't restore them back to salvation. But then he contrasts to those who, he says, but I expect better things for you who belong to salvation. He explains these better things in verses uh, 10 through 12. So I think if you keep reading that verse within its context, uh, you will see kind of, kind of where he's coming from. I like what Grudem talks about as he closes this section out with Hebrews 6 and 10, and he says, quote, This passage does not talk about someone who is genuinely saved, but someone who has received some beneficial moral influence through contact with the church. So you have to wrestle with this text. This Hebrews 6, this Hebrews 10, if you read it initially and don't read it within its context, I think you can form a pretty solid case for apostasy that somebody can lose their salvation. But if you read it within its context, especially the last part of Hebrews 6 where he juxtaposes those who have truly been saved, he said, I expect better things of you who have experienced salvation than these people that I just talked to you about a moment ago. All right? So let's look at that. Let's look at some signs of a true believer, somebody who really is saved and they have assurance of their salvation. Uh, number one is they have a present trust in Christ. Uh, the, the most famous verse in the Bible talks about a present tense belief in Christ. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whosoever believes, believes present tense, uh, whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. We have a present tense uh, faith, if you will. Um, if you were to die and stand before God and he says, Why should I let you into heaven? You, you don't repeat any good deeds you've done. You just said, well, I trust. I, I have trusted in Christ for salvation, and I'm trusting in him for salvation um, uh, alone. That was one of the neat things that I learned in this reproducing discipleship class that we took over the weekend, and many of you have gone through it as well. It talks about the power of a personal testimony, and part of that testimony is not only what God has done in your life, but what God is doing right now in your life. And so that, that's a really a powerful assurance of salvation, and it's also a very powerful witness to somebody you're talking to because many times if we're not careful, we can get our Christianity so much in the past and, that, oh, man, when I used to walk with God, oh, man, I used to go to church, oh, man, things were great, and that's okay, but what is God doing now? What is God doing in your life right now? And that's a real strong aspect of this reproducing discipleship. When you witness, you talk about what Jesus is doing in your life today. Number, not only do you have a present tense faith, but a true believer who has assurance also shows evidence of a regenerating work of God. He or she will show evidence of a regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit bears witness with our, children, with our spirit that we are the children of God. The Holy Spirit leads God's children to do God's will and to live a life of obedience. Does that mean you will live a perpetual, endless, never-sinning life of obedience? No, if you do, then I would like to meet you. I, I want to shake your hand. I want you to give me the secret to that amazing life that you live. No, uh, it, it's not that. Remember, it's this upward, just kind of, we deviate a little bit. We sin, I know. And John says, if we say you don't sin, you're a liar. The truth is not in you, but you don't live in sin. And you kind of make your way upward. The fruit of the Spirit is evident in our lives. Uh, I think that is a powerful assurance that there has been a regenerating work of the Holy Spirit because the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so uh, those attributes of, of the Christian life, that's not... I can't manufacture that. I can't pr produce that, especially that last one, self-control. Who can control self without the work of the Holy Spirit living in them and through them? So that's an assurance or that's a... A proof. Then these traits characterize our lives, not that we exemplify them perfectly uh, at, at all times. Uh, Grudem also says another assurance is that this person uh, who's really saved builds other people up in their faith. Uh, and Jesus said in Matthew 7, 16 through 20, you will know them uh, by their fruit. Somebody who says they're a Christian and they, they have no fruit of the Spirit and they love to tear people up more than they like to, uh, to build them up, and there just seems to be no joy. There may be a lot of duty. There may be a lot of religion. I'm describing a Pharisee, by the way. And that, a Pharisee, somebody's really close to the church and maybe really steeped into the church, and they were really close to Jesus on earth, but obviously they never knew him. They never had a, a personal relationship with him. Another uh, assurance or sign of a true believer is 
is we obey the sound teaching, uh, and, and Grudem calls it, of the church. He says we obey the sound teaching of the church. I, I would say we obey the sound teaching of, of the Word of God, okay? But I get what he's saying about ecclesiology because if we're truly the church, then we will teach this, all right? We will teach uh, the Word of God. All right, the true follower of Christ will read God's Word, delight in it, and, uh, and seek to obey it and demonstrate his personal relationship with the Lord. Now, this is the part I want to uh, take a minute and share with you about 1 John. Um, John R.W. Stott, he's a great uh, theologian. Uh, until somewhat recently, he became an annihilationist, which greatly disappointed me, which Stott was a great conservative evangelical theologian who believed that after a time of suffering, God will just annihilate the person and they will not stay in hell forever. I disagree with that. By the way, we're going to talk about that in chapters 18 and 19. But Stott, in his book, The Epistle of 1 John, he, he, his commentary, he says there are three tests. You, ought, you might want to jot these down. I, I, there are some things that I've read, they stay in my mind, and this is, this is one of them. He says there's a moral test of obedience. Okay, there's a moral test of obedience. If we say we love God, we don't keep his commandments, truth is not in us. He said there's a doctrinal test of belief, uh, that you really believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And he who says that Jesus is not of, of God, he says he is, not, he is not born of God. So you have this uh, moral test of obedience following Jesus, this doctrinal test of belief, and then this last one he calls a social test. The social test of love, which kind of ties back to Grudem's ecclesiology, the social test of love goes like this. If you say you love God and hate your brother, the truth is not in you. You can't say that I'm a follower of Christ and I'm on my way to heaven and I despise that woman. I just can't believe she would darken the door of our church. What a heathen she is. No, you're a heathen and going to hell, John said. You, you can't say you despise the brethren, and yet you also are a follower of Christ. Now, does that mean you enjoy and like everything that everybody does? No, but that's a difference than that, that harsh spirit and that critical spirit and just being angry with the church all the time. John says you have failed the social test of love, and you need to be born again. Finally, there is, for the true believer, a long-term pattern of growth in his or her life. And I'm kind of repeating myself with this little upward, you know, demonstration, but there, there it is. 2 Peter 1 says, we will add to our faith virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. And he says, if we do these things, you never fall away. That's what Peter says. If you do these things, you never fall away because you really can't fall away. Because if the Holy Spirit lives within you and is manifesting his life through you, then you're on this upward, uh, upward path. And I'll close by saying this on the, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Um, I honestly can see why people don't believe it because they don't look so much at Scripture. What do they look at? They look at people, Vivian. You're absolutely right. They don't look so much at, at, at hardcore biblical teaching because if you really study that book, I think you're going to have to come out on the side of a perseverance of the saints. But the thing that really bothers people is they don't look at Scripture or Jesus. They look at us. And they look at some who have had false conversions, and they're like, well, surely that person was saved, and he fell away. So obviously there is apostasy, and you can lose your salvation, and you better repent, and you better confess your sins every moment of every day because who knows, you might have a sin and you die in a car wreck. Oh, my goodness, what's going to happen to you? Wouldn't that be a horrible way to live? I, I just I can't imagine living like that. Have a bad thought, die. Oh, goodness, Lord, am I going to make it into heaven? Well, here, this is a problem. Because hold on just a second. Did you earn your salvation? No. You know, so you didn't earn it. And, and, and so he is a gift. He gave it to you. And so, again, the onus is back on God to say that we can lose our salvation, that we are born again, and then we're not born again says more about Jesus than it does about us. It says, Holy Spirit, you're strong, but you're just not that strong. You know, you had me at one time. I guess I'm the exception, Jesus, where it says in John 10 that I was in your hand, your hand's in the Father's hand, but man, I got out of there. I tell you, I just got out, you know, and I just, well, you can't get out. You really can't, if you are genuine, and why would you want to get out? If you were truly born again, why would you want to apostatize? Why would you want to say, oh, I don't ever believe that stuff? I don't. It's because you never believed that stuff. That's what I would say to this person that I'm praying for, or should I pray for. 
Interesting. This is, this is, this is fun. This is deep for 7 o'clock on any morning, Thursday morning. All right, so that's uh, sanctification and perseverance uh, of the saints. And we'll get into this next topic of death. But before we do, let me stop and just see if you have any questions or any comments about, uh, about this, these two doctrines of sanctification and perseverance. If you have a question or a statement, I'll repeat it for those who are online, and then I'll try to give an answer. Yeah, I can. Let me, um, let me give you the Greek word on that. The question is, can I give a definition of the word um, partakers? It's, it's metakos in the Greek, and it means to be associated with. Uh, to be associated with metakos. They were partakers uh, of the Holy Spirit. They partook in workings of the Holy Spirit, at least... At least they had seen the power of, of the Holy Spirit. They were in a, a setting where it was very manifest and very, very obvious. Partake in the sense that they were associated with, but not partake in the sense that they were baptized with. Because you know? at the point of salvation, people ask me, do you believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit? I was like, absolutely. And then they get mad at me when I say, it's, it happened at salvation. No, it not happen at salvation. It's a subsequent blessing. It's something apart from salvation. I'm like, no, I believe in multiple fillings, but I believe in one, uh, baptism. Thank you, Brother Ross. That's a good question. Metacos, M-E-T-O-C-H-O-S. Any other questions, comments about it? Going once, going twice. All right, let's talk about Lesson 16, which is a... Um, at first, I'm going to say this. You're going to think, boy, that's an exciting doctrine. That's a moribund thing if I ever heard it, the doctrine of death. But let's talk about this. Uh, we have a whole lesson here, and, and Grudem has a whole chapter uh, in his books about the doctrine uh, of death. He entitles it Death and the Intermediate State. And I really like his material here. It's very, uh, very helpful and very instructive. I don't know if y'all noticed, but I agree with almost everything of Wayne Grudem. There are some things I disagree with, and, and he and I would just have to agree to disagree about uh, prognosis and uh, election and predestination. He, he, will never, he will never come over to where I am, and I will never go over to where he is, and that's okay. We can agree to disagree. And there's some other things in there I've, I've seen, like I think it's in this, in this lecture I, I bring out that I, that I disagree with, but... Most of it I, I agree with, but I'm really glad I chose his, because I've read a number of systematic theology books, but like you, um, this was new to me. His, his textbook was, was new to me, and that's why I've enjoyed um, studying it. Okay, let's, let's look at, see some of the teachings, the doctrine about, uh, about death. Scripture teaches us that all will die and face death <clears throat> until or unless Jesus comes again and, uh, and calls us to be with him. So every person born will die. Everybody will go into the deep, raw throat of death. We will all die unless the Lord comes and raptures us and takes us away. Death is something uh, to be avoided, but it's, some, it's not something to be terrified of. And what do I mean by that? I don't, I don't know of anybody that just says, bring on death. You know, I'm just going to walk out in the middle of the street and take my chances, or I'm not going to take any care of myself whatsoever. I'm, I'm just going to live forever on this earth. No, I think we ought to avoid death with all that's within us. Take good care of ourselves, um, you know, exercise and, and not accelerate death or bring it. But it's something as a Christian we, sh- we should not be terrified by. It. Those who do not, do not follow Christ will, well, they will need to prolong their life as long as possible uh, because after that there is no, no hope. Some believe that life ceases to exist after one dies. Well, I hear this more and more and more in our secular age. And it sounds something like this. You only go around... Have y'all ever heard that? I mean, I hear that all the time. And it's not within the context, you only go around once on this earth and you die and you go be with Jesus in heaven. They never say that. They say you only... It's kind of the mantra of the hedonistic mantra. Uh, Live, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we what? We die. With the connotation of we die and that is it. You cease to... Uh, exist. Um, and the scripture has something utterly different to say about it. 
okay? Hebrews 9.27 has something to say about it. It is appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. And all of us will appear before the judgment seat of God. So um, this is kind of some introductory comments about death. And I hope as I'm talking to you all this morning about it, I hope it will give some of you some some words of encouragement and, and some thoughts of, you know, I don't have to fear this thing at all. I mean, Jesus overcame it. And the last enemy, one day he's just going to throw it away completely and there will be no more crying, there will be no more sorrow, there will be no more cancer, there will be no more Alzheimer's, there will be no more any of this other stuff that's part of this fallen world and then we will be with him forever in heaven. So biblical teaching regarding uh, death. Uh, the Bible states that both believers and unbelievers or non-believers will die and our lives will cease to exist, that's true, on this earth. And our eternal destinies will be determined by what we do with Jesus in this life, and we can't cast ourselves upon the mercy of God if we reject him. Are are you with me? I get this a lot. Well, if there is a God, then I'll just take my chances, and then when I die, I'll say, oh, you are real, I believe in you now, and it doesn't doesn't work that way. Uh, The determination has to be made here on on this earth. Some believe hell is a big party, we're drinking Budweiser, smoking marijuana, and it's just going to be great because... All my friends are going there, and so it, it can't be that bad. And, and you hear these songs, and you hear these jokes about hell is a big party, and we're just going to party on in the afterlife forever. But what does the Bible say about it? What does the Bible say about, about death? Well, the Bible has a lot to say about death, and it's because everybody dies. Uh, a is death is not a punishment for Christians. That is a good statement, Dr. Grudem. Death is not a punishment for Christians because Romans 8, 1 says there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in uh, Christ Jesus. Uh, Romans six twenty three says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, God created us to live forever. I don't know if y'all know that. He created Adam and Eve in a perfect environment. He created them to live forever in fellowship with him. But what happened? She ate the apple. God said, do not eat that. Do not do that. And she's like, I think I'll do this, you know. And I think you will too, honey. And so they, they both eat it, and they sin. And the moment they sin, they begin to die. And the wages of sin is death. The end result of sin is we will die. But the good news is, for the follower of Christ, that's not the end story. The end story is eternal life through Jesus Christ, uh, our Lord, okay? So every person uh, uh, born will die and I like this statement, and upon death, they will be very much alive. You ever heard this statement, there are no atheists one second after death? That's true. There are no atheists immediately after death. They die, and they're like, oh, wow. <laughs> wow. You know, was I ever uh, mistaken? And B, death is the final outcome for living in a fallen world. I talked about that just a little bit. It's the outcome of living uh, in a fallen world. True, we are saved in our salvation is not experienced in total at the moment of the new birth. Did you know that? Paul talks about, you know, we're being saved, and we're, we're, we're predestined, we're, we're saved, but there, eventually we are glorified, is what he says. So we are saved in a moment. The Holy Spirit lives within us, but our salvation is now, but not yet. There's a, there's a heavenly dimension to it. There's an eternal uh, dimension to it. But the Holy Spirit comes to live within us. He is our guarantee that we will live forever with God in heaven. Have you ever noticed that God does not take you to heaven right after you get saved? you ever notice that? If, the, if, the, if all that God created us to, to do is to be saved, then he ought to kill us all as soon as we get saved. But that's not his plan. His plan is, once we accept him, that we begin to live a life for him, a life that's pleasing to him, and lead as many people as we can uh, to, to him. So death is the final outcome for living in this, in this fallen world. Speaking of this fallen world, let me, let me give you a verse of Scripture that's going to encourage you. Romans, I mean, excuse me, Revelation 21.4 talks about uh, this, this world right before uh, God wraps everything up and it's incinerated, it's destroyed, and then we, uh, he ushers in the new Jerusalem or the new heavens and the new earth, and he says, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death. He says that first. Now, there will be no more death. Now, there's going to be death up until this time because it's just a natural result of living in a fallen world. But there's coming a day, hallelujah, aren't you glad, that there will be no more death. And Paul says, and the last enemy destroyed is death. 
There will be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more tears, amen. No more pain, for the former things uh, have, passed, have passed away. I was driving in this, this morning, I was listening to the radio, and it, this, this young lady, she called in. Boy, I was just crying. It broke my heart as I was listening to this lady's testimony. She goes, and they said, well, honey, are you okay? She goes, I'm not okay. And they said, well, what's wrong? She said, she said my dad died uh, one a year ago today, and the, there's a Christian radio station, and they're like, oh, I'm so sorry, I, I, t- tell us about that. She goes, well, she said, I have a twin, and I have another sister, but they both would tell you I was daddy's girl. And I was like, I just started crying. I was like, bless your soul. I need to be careful. I need to watch where I'm going, but I was like, I was involved in this story, and this girl's heart, well, she sounded kind of young. And it's just her heart was just shattered, just broken. And, and so it, they began to talk about death. Right there in the middle of 6.30 traffic or whatever it was, I'm driving down the road. Thinking, they're talking about my subject here. And so I was listening, and they were just talking about the ravages of death. And they said, well, what do you miss about your dad? And, well, he used to call me all the time. I said, stop. I said, you're killing me. He'd call me. He'd just encourage me and talk to me. He, he can't do that anymore. And then the announcer, he says, you know, my dad died five years ago this week, and I'm going to tell you something, it gets a little better, but it still is hard. And they were just talking about death and being separated. And then they turned it around, they thought, but listen to this, was your dad a, a follower of Christ? She said, oh, yes, he loved the Lord. She, and the announcer said, well, guess what? You're going to see him again. And his, he's going to be elated. He's going to be thrilled to see you because you told us you're also a follower of Christ. Now, how would that conversation go if they weren't saved? Wouldn't it break your heart? Well, I love my dad. That's it. You know, that's it. You know, I never, I never see, see him again. Man, we have hope. Praise God we have hope in Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 26. I've been quoting this a lot this morning. Let me just say it. The Apostle Paul said, The last enemy to be destroyed is, is death. Death does not come to us as Christians as a penalty for our sins, for Christ has paid that debt for us. Okay? There's no penalty to be paid now. It, it, Christ has paid the penalty. But we do die, again, as a result of living in a fallen world, just like we get cancer. Christians are not exempt from cancer. You ever notice that? We're not exempt from uh, cardiac arrest and disease. We're not exempt from Alzheimer's. We, we, all, we, we will all eventually get one of those if we live long enough. They say if you're a guy, you will get prostate cancer. It's just, it's just a matter of time. Now, whether it kills you or not, that's another thing, but you will die with it. It's just a matter of living in this fallen world. We all will, we will die. And it's, again, it's part of the, part of the curse. Ah, oh, but the last enemy to be destroyed will be death. Mm. So in the meantime, as followers of Christ who suffer along with the world, uh, we enjoy the benefits of salvation because one day we do not die. We stay with him in heaven. All right, this is interesting. Grudem says, God uses death to complete our sanctification. God uses even death for our benefit. Romans 8, 28, still in the Bible. And God uses all things, and all things work together for good to, to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And death is the final trial that God uses, and we have to pass through it, and he uses it to sanctify us. Um, Viewing death not as a punishment for the believer, but as a part of living where God further sanctifies us should actually bring us hope and should empower us and enable us not to live uh, with fear. Uh, death is unavoidable. I get that. It's not natural because it ends life, but, in a, but, it, but it, is, it, it is normal, okay, because it, we all have to pass through that portal of, of death. You know, I, I wonder, I really think sometimes, because I'm get, I get this way a little bit. I still have this little phobia of death. And I, I'm sorry if that's a lack of faith on my part. I, I, I don't know. I think if everybody, if they're real honest, they would say, yeah, you know, I'm with you. I love Jesus. I know where I'm going. But it's, it's, it's death. I mean, it's, it's, it's the last enemy. And I, I wonder, as soon as, as soon as we die and we go, what in the world was I concerned about? <laughs> you know, there he is. And it's just like, you go to sleep, and, and then you wake up, and, and then there we are as followers of Christ. We're in the presence, the presence of the Lord. All right, obedience to God, D, 
is more important than preserving our lives here on this earth. This is a good word from Grudem too. He says, obedience to God is more important than our life uh, preservation. And Paul says in Acts 21, 13, and he kind of he fusses at them a, a little bit. Acts 21, 13, Rick, you have that? And Paul answered, he says, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready. See what he's saying? He's just, man, there's, there's something better than this. He says, I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die. I'm ready to die at Jerusalem for the name uh, of the Lord Jesus. And by the way, all the apostles died a, a violent martyr's death except one. And I know everybody in here knows who that person was. It was John. Amen. Uh, he, as best we know, died on the island uh, of Patmos. All right, so there's more things. Uh, uh, obedience to God is more important than, than preserving uh, our, our life. There's a, there's a verse, and let, let me preface it by saying, you know, I, I hope that I am that guy that, that Mike described uh, Monday night, Tuesday night, in our Kalal investment group meeting. He talked about a, a pastor over there who's actually... Uh, ethnically, he is a Kalal person. There are no Kalal churches, but there are individual Kalal people who, who, who have come to faith, not many of them, but there, is, there are no churches. That's why God said, Great Hills, I want you all to go make sure that there will be churches. And so that's what we're excited about. We're going to do that. But, but Mike told the story about one of those guys, and they, they came to him and they said, Listen, if you keep preaching that Bible, we're going to cut your hand off. We're going to cut your left hand off. And, uh, and if you keep preaching them, we're going to come back, we're going to cut your right leg off. And some, some Mike asked him, they said, well, what, what would you do? I mean, really, what will you do? He says, I'll stand on one leg with one hand and I'll preach the word of God. That's a powerful story. By the way. And by the way, that's not just a story. That's a reality. That's probably going to happen to him. And a lot of those guys that we got to minister to and I got to teach a, a few months ago or last month, uh, a lot of those guys are going to suffer. They're going to suffer bodily harm for their faith. I would like to be that guy who said, that's what I would do. But I don't know that because I haven't faced that. Y'all may look at it and say, oh, Brother Dan, I'd just go to the death for Jesus. And I, I'd like to think I would as well, uh, even to be tortured. Y'all know one of those uh, precious 40 that we sent out a couple Wednesday nights ago? One of them's a 29-year-old single lady. And one of the trustees said, do you have any fears? She said, yeah, torture. She said, I fear being tortured. She's as Anglo, she looks just like us. And that trustee told me, he, just, he basically just shut down. He just said, I don't need to be asking you anything else. Uh, you need to be teaching me. <laughs> so he, said, he said, you have a strong, strong faith. And there's another family. I don't know if y'all knew this. One of those families is going to an Islamic country where the family that was before them, their cover was blown, and they were told, we're going to burn your children. We're going to burn them. So the IMB went in and got them out. And another family said, that's where, <laughs> that's where we want to go. We're going to take our children with us. Like, Do y'all know those kind of people were in our house the other night? Those are the people in our room that Wednesday night when we were commissioning them and loving on them and honoring them, those, some of those people I really believe are not going to make it back. Because it, and that's what Keith Idle said. He said, unless we develop this body bag mentality of missions, we're not going to reach the nations. But guess what? Death is not the final say. If we know him, if we suffer with him, what's the scripture say? We will, we will reign with him. Kathy Spencer came up to me after the service. We were standing right there in the hall, and she says, and you know, I'm afraid to go down the street and witness to my neighbor. She goes, mercy, I've got so far to go. And I'm like, I do too. You know, I mean, just our suffering is minuscule. It's nothing compared to some of this genuine suffering. That will certainly lead uh, to death. But obedience to God, I agree, is more important than the preservation uh, of our lives. But here's the verse that I quote every morning, and again, I quote it, and I sure hope I live it if the time comes. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to death. They did not love their lives unto death. They weren't so concerned about preserving their lives that they would deny the Lord. And that's Revelation 12, 11 within the context of the Great Tribulation. Mark eight thirty five. 
For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels uh, will save it. All right? So two is the death, uh, death of believers and uh, unbelievers. Let's talk about this for just a minute. Point number one was biblical teaching regarding death. It's not a punishment for Christians. It's the, it's, it's the final outcome, though, of living in a fallen world. God uses death to complete our sanctification. Amen. But obedience to God is more important than preserving our lives. Um, man, that's just a good word for us. I, obedience is better than preference. Obedience is better than anything. Uh, you know, God's not called us to sacrifice. He's called us to obedience, just yielding our lives uh, unto his. Okay, so let's talk about the death of believers. What happens when a believer dies and what happens when an unbeliever dies? If one is a believer, then he or she faces uh, the prospect of death very much differently than if they were not uh, a believer. Um, if I have this little check in my spirit or a little bit of a hesitancy about death, even as a believer, I'm telling you, as an unbeliever, it scared me to death. It, it's, I was petrified of dying because I didn't know really if I was saved or not until I was 19 years of age. <laughs> you know, I may die and go to heaven and God says, well, I really did save you at six when you went forward and, I, and you got baptized. I really did save you then. And I'm like, hey, man, that's all good, you know, because I was... I think I was saved when I was 19. So I'm in college, and I'm going home with Rodney. Rodney is one of my best friends, and we are going to visit his house. Rodney is a black belt in karate. He's trying to, he's trying to teach me. I'd taken karate as a, as a child, but I'd forgotten just about everything I learned. And so we would do these spar. He would kick me upside the head, and that would make me so mad, but I couldn't do anything about it. I mean, he, he's a black belt, and I'm a novice again. He says, well, let's, I want you to go home with me. I'm saying, this is a true story. I said, let's, I'm going home with you. We're driving down the road. He sees this hitchhiker. Y'all remember we used to have a lot of hitchhikers? Am I showing my age, you know? Rodney says, we got to pick this guy up and witness to him. I was like, are you sure about that? And he said, man, fearless. Rodney's just fearless. So he picks this big old hitchhiker guy up, and, he, and I put him in the front, so I'm sitting in the back. Sure enough, I get my steps to peace with God, and I'm starting to witness to him, and and talk to him about the Lord. We didn't know this guy had enemies who were after him. And this car pulls up beside us, takes a beer bottle, and throws it, and bashes up against our window. And I'm like, what in the world? And man, Rodney is one angry young man. He is fired up. And then this guy is gone ballistic. I mean, he is like, stop the car, stop the car. And, uh, and Rodney was wanting to stop the car. But guess who didn't want to stop the car? I was like, brother, let's keep riding. I said, I like living. I said, let's go. And that lost guy turned around and says, what are you afraid of? You're born again. I'll never forget that. And he's saying, I'm not born again. I'm going to hell, and I'm not fearful of death. Stop the car. And Rodney said, I said, don't you stop the car. We're not getting out of this car. And these two guys between them would have killed these two guys. I noticed these two older, drunk guys were after. I don't know what this guy had done, but they were after him. So we found a police. We asked the police. We flagged the policeman down. He said, there's really nothing I can do. He said, there's, you know, they're, they're gone. But I'll never forget that. He goes, what are you worried about? You're born again, I thought. Because I'd been sharing the steps to peace with God. I was witnessing to him. He didn't get saved. But he, he even knew there was a difference between a believer's destiny and an unbeliever. So what does Scripture say about the death of a believer? I can tell you what it doesn't say. It does not say anything about purgatory. And it doesn't say anything about soul sleep. And it doesn't say anything about annihilation. It does say, you die and shazam, kaboom. To be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. Now, really, the, the most natural understanding of that text is a sense of immediacy. Paul did not say to be absent in the body and to wait about 10 million years and then go into soul sleep and then go into uh, purgatory. Then I'll be present with the Lord. I think you, and a lot of people get that from there. I don't know how they do that, but they get it from this verse. But let's just read it. As it is, we are confident, yes, well-pleased, rather, to be absent from the body and to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. And then Paul says in Philippians 1, these are scriptures you guys know, and like me, you love them. For to me, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. What is so gain about purgatory? What is there to gain about sleeping for millions and millions of years or whatever it is, and then, you know, I know. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. Love this. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. And, and his, his angst is, or do I stay here and, and keep ministering to you and build you up in your faith? So if there wasn't a sense of immediacy and a sense of heaven right after this existence, then we've totally misunderstood Paul. But I think in Paul's mind, in his heart, being inspired by the Holy Spirit, upon death, he will be in the presence of the Lord. In Romans 8, 38, 39, it says, Not even death is able to separate us from the love of God. Trial, tribulation, all these things, neither life nor uh, death. In Hebrews 2, 15, the writer of the book of Hebrews says, And release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Release them through fear of death. To me, the sense is, out of this bondage, bodily existence into the, the presence of the Lord. We have confidence in God's word that all those who know Christ will depart from this life and enter into his presence immediately. It's interesting, a few weeks ago when I was studying this very chapter, I was also reading a biography um, on Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Finally got his name right. I've been working on that a long time. Solzhenitsyn. He was a, uh, a Russian prisoner of war during Stalin's day. <clears throat> I told our admin group meeting yesterday that he was arrested and put in hard labor camp because he wrote a derogatory comment about Joseph Stalin. He gave the note to his friend, and the police found it, and they said, did you write this? He said, yeah, eight years. Eight years. Now, do people in Russia really want to go back to that? Just saying. Do you, do you really want to go back, back to that? And, and I don't trust Putin that much. I just don't trust him. And anyhow. So they asked him, and when he came through that situation, and he was, of course, he found Christ. Christ found him in that gulag, in that, in that prison, and he became a strong follower of Christ. Toward the end of his life, he was in an interview, and they said, do you fear death? Do you fear death? And this is, this is what he said. The title of the chapter, God helps me so much, y'all. I tell you, I'm just, I couldn't ever orchestrate this. The very moment I'm studying death and Grudem, I read this chapter, and the title of the chapter is, I am not afraid of death. He replies, nope, I am not afraid of death anymore. I feel that it is a natural, but by no means the final milestone of one's existence. End of quote. So what about mourning as Christians? Should we mourn the death of, uh, of other believers? And again, I was listening to the radio just this morning, that same story, and the guy was saying, absolutely, it's okay to, to mourn and to grieve. It's a, it's a natural result of missing uh, your, your loved one. And there's biblical precedent for this, by the way. In Acts chapter 8, verse 2, Stephen was martyred, and the Bible says, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him even though he was a Christian. In Acts chapter 20, Paul addressed the Ephesian elders, and they wept. And the reason they wept is because of something he said. He said, you will not see my face anymore. And, and they knew that he's going to die and go to heaven, and they, they're going to miss him, and so they're weeping. Jesus himself wept over the news of Lazarus, his good friend who died, but also there's a sense there of him weeping as he sees the ravages of death. But anyhow, I think it's absolutely okay. Some might challenge you, say, why are you weeping, Christian? Don't you have faith that you're going to see them again? Yes, I'm going to see them again there, but I'm not going to see them anymore here. And, and I think it's absolutely okay to have a sense of grief and to weep. 1 Thessalonians 4.13, Paul makes a distinction, however, between the grief and the weeping of those who are not saved and the grief and the weeping of those who are saved. Uh, the former have no hope, but the latter do. So we grieve, but not with despair and hopelessness, that characterizes the, death, the deaths of, of unbelievers. So speaking of the death of unbelievers, what happens to them upon death? The follower of Christ goes to heaven, and unbelievers go to hell. They really do go to hell. And Grudem, later on, he writes, he says, I'm telling you, hell is some, one of the hardest things to, to get our minds around. He said, but if we really believe this book, then we really do believe there's a hell. The author of this book, none other than Jesus Christ, taught more about hell than he did heaven. 
I wonder why. Probably because more people are going there than, than other. I mean, he, the Bible talks about a literal, spatial, physical place called, called hell. And those who die without Christ, that is where, that is where they go. And Agrudem says, well, hold on just a second. Now, he says, and this is one of the places I disagree with him. He said, I mean, we've we got to be careful. He says, because we don't really know because what that person might have done at the last moment of their lives. They may have had a deathbed conversion, and so we need to be careful, not so dogmatic, that the old reprobate Joe, he died and he's in hell. And Grudem says, be careful because at the last breath, he may have given his life to Christ. And, and I disagree. Uh, and I disagree because how many deathbed conversions are there in Scripture? I can think of one. The, day, the thief on the cross. Johnny Hunt, I think, is right. A man dies the way he lives. Almost every time, almost every time, a man will die the way he's lived. Now, there are times, and I'm not discounting this, but Grudem's talking about just, I mean, at the last breath, I'm a, I was an atheist all my life, a reprobate. I, I'm, I don't believe that anymore. Jesus, I believe on you, and I'm going to be saved. I want to go to heaven. Now, if that person does that, and they genuinely repent, and, and, and guess, now listen to this. Not only does he go to heaven, he gets the same heaven that you get. And that fired some people up in Jesus' day. They're like, what do you mean to tell me? Jesus said, let me tell you a story. Remember the story? The workers Worked 12 hours, you got paid, you know. And then one guy worked an hour, he got the same pay you did. That, that's not fair. He says, no, it is fair. You, you get to go to heaven. And you get to go to the same heaven as that guy who never did a thing for the Lord. I mean, and I know there's rewards in heaven, and I get that. But I just, I just I disagree with Mr. Grudem. I think he places more stock in humanity than I do at that last moment. So, all right, let me stop. There, three, we'll stop here with questions related to death. This is a new section, and we've got just a couple pages, and we'll go on to Lesson 17, and it may just be us four and no more uh, next, next Thursday because, because my wife asked me last night. She goes, you know, spring break's next week. Are you going to go? I said, I am. I said, I'm going. I'm going to go, and it may just be a, a handful of us, but um, we're, we're going we're gonna to go for it. So any, any questions about, about this before we... Uh, before we go in peace about this section of death, I know it's a tough subject. Yes, sir, in the back. Oh, what a great question. All right, I'm going to try to answer this. I'm going to repeat the question. At what point do we get our new bodies, our resurrected bodies? Okay. I'll tell you what Gruden believes, all right, and I'll tell you what my New Testament professor believes, and then I will say they're probably right, but uh, there's something about this that I just, and, and y'all can help me if, I'm, if I should have no angst about this whatsoever. But Grudem is very clear, and I think, I think he's right. And, and, and like Tommy Lee, my New Testament professor, who explained this to our New Testament class, he says, when we die, to be absent in the body, that body does stay there, as you know. That, that corpse lies there, but our spirit or our soul, depending on how you say it, We'll go to be with the Lord, and we will be with the Lord. But at the return of Christ, the dead in Christ rise, 1 Thessalonians 4, in some miraculous way, we are reunited with this body, and we have a new, resurrected, glorified body like the body that Jesus has. Now, I always thought, I get that when I die. I mean, I, I get that then. And, and, and Grudem says, no, you don't. And my New Testament professor, I remember him saying, no, you don't, because you've got to deal with 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And I remember Tommy Lee sitting behind his desk and saying, this is, this is strange. <laughs> he goes, this is a strange doctrine. But, but we believe it because we believe that's what Paul is teaching us in the, in the Scripture. So, anyhow, that's a good question. Any other questions? It's 744. I answer all the questions you've ever had on death in one minute. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Any, anything before we pray and go? Yes, sir, Dan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's a good. His people have asked me over and over. Said, please repeat the question. I'm repeating the question. 
Y'all, there's a lot of people watches us online that I did not realize. Not only in this class, but on Sunday morning, there were 126 units watching us Sunday online. Now, I don't know how many people are per unit. I'm tempted to count those people sometimes. Just say, Ross, there was 126 times five. Oh, we had another five, 600 people. Never mind. Can't, can't do that. Can't do that. I'm sorry, Dan. Dan asked, what about time? God is above time, outside of time. How does that relate to us upon death? I believe we're still within the constraints of time until the new heaven and the new earth. Because when we die, for example, if I were to die today, a natural death, or not a natural death, but just be dead, accident or whatever, there are still major eschatological events that are going to have to happen. The Antichrist is still going to come in time. Uh, The the, the rapture of the church is still going to come in time. There's going to be um, the great tribulation, and then there's going to be judgment. So there there are things that, that are really spelled out in time. But but with God, though, that's all present tense. That's what's so mysterious to me. God just is. He sees everything past, present, future as it, as it is. Now, again, we're, we're very limited at that point because we are very much limited by time, space, and so forth. But God is just, he's just above it. He's just above it all because he created it. I think he created time for us to help us with sequence. So. Hope that helps a little bit. Anybody else? 746. All right. God bless y'all. Y'all are wonderful. Let me pray for you, and then we will we'll go. Lord, we love you. We thank you for our time together. We can worship you with our minds. I do pray now, God, as we leave this place, may we not just say we believe it, but we would really act like we believe there's a hell. And every person we meet, Lord, help us love them. Help us to share the gospel with them. Help us to invite them to you, to our church. Give them a gospel track. Do anything we can to point them, Lord, to you before it's too late. And Lord, we, again, we just thank you for our time together. Thank you for the great freedom, 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 Lord, in this nation, that we get to do what we do with no fear and no persecution, really, Lord. So we pray for our brothers and sisters who are on the front lines in other places of the world, God, that this could cost them their life, and it will cost them their life here on this earth. So, God, we uh, pray that you go with us today. Help us to be faithful. Help us to walk with you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you. You're dismissed.